Okay, Happy New Year to everyone out there. Thank you for joining us for our first episode of the year on Partnership for the Arts, where we talk art. Kat, good to see you again. Happy New Year. How are you doing over there? I'm doing great, Dave. How are you? I am feeling blessed, and I've got my high-octane coffee. Oh, me too. Yeah, and that's how we measure our show time by the amount of coffee we have to drink. So. Right. <laughs> but I am excited about this because we have someone that I have been blessed to know for many years and has become very dear to me and someone that has been on our schedule for quite a while to actually get this interview done. I'm very excited to have her on the show today. She is a New York Times bestseller. And of course, we are talking about author Lisa Wingate. Just wanted to give a little background on this author. She calls Texas home. She is a formal journalist, an inspirational speaker. She's an author of over 30 novels. That's impressive. Yes. And her work has been, has won or been nominated for many, many awards. And just to mention a few, the Pat Conroy Southern Book Prize, the Oklahoma Book Award, the Carroll Award, the Christie Award, and her latest novel, which again is the New York Times bestseller. For over a year, came and still going strong. That's amazing. Um, from what uh, I understand. And it is the Publisher Weekly's number three longest running bestseller. Amazing. On, yeah, on that list. And it was voted by the readers of uh, the Good Readers Choice Award winner. And before we were yours, has sold today over a million copies. And uh, when we get with Lisa here, we're going to actually get an update on that number. Exactly. Yeah, fantastic fiction writer. And the latest book, you know, she took something that was very historical. She had to bring to light something dark that mm. had happened in our society. And with doing that, a lot of healing came about. Yes, and you know, we'll and learn all about that. I mm -hmm. know, I know. It's really, really powerful. Um, she's such a sweetheart. Yes. Just, I, I just can't wait to engage and learn uh, from her. I know I'm going to be inspired to really get on that book that <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and I think she's going to have some good tips for you to on how to do that. I know. <laughs> yeah, so here we go. All right, let's get with it. This is Partnership for the Arts. Come join us. As we explore the worlds of art. You can also find all of our episodes on our Facebook page, Partnership for the Arts Group Talk Show, or our newest website, pftatalkshow.org. This show is recorded at the Visual Arts Center in Punta Gorda, Florida. Okay, and we are back, and Kat, author Lisa Wingate is standing by via the web. She's written over 30 novels, and her latest one, uh, Before We Were Yours, has sold over a million copies. Excited to have her on the show with us. So, Lisa, can you hear us? Yes. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Wonderful. Wonderful. Good to hear your voice again. Welcome to the show and want you to say uh, hi to Kat. Hi, Lisa. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing great. I can't wait to talk to you and get to know you a little bit. I love your storytelling. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Yeah, and you're sounding really good. How's the weather? Um, really stormy, so we'll keep our fingers crossed. Right, right. Well, we'll, we'll try and get through this while we have the good weather there. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of weather the last 24 hours or so. Yeah. We'll hope it holds out and we get decent reception. Right. Okay, well, we'll go with that. It's good to uh, talk to you again. 
Yeah. <laughs> Good to talk to you. There, there's nothing more fun than talk. If you're a book person, there's nothing more fun than talking about books. <laughs> it's all art. Art, you know, uh, talking shop here. <laughs> That's right. Uh, especially these books. Yes. Because, Lisa, you, you've written quite a few novels. And uh, we're going to cover those, and we're going to also cover your your latest one, of course, the uh, New York Times bestseller, over a million copies sold of your book. But we wanted to try and start from, let's say, the beginning as being an author. I know from conversations we've had, uh, you were actually inspired by your first grade teacher. Is that correct? I was. People always ask where, you know, how did I get started writing, or did I always know I wanted to be a writer? And I, I really always wanted to be a writer because my first grade teacher told me I would be a writer. Uh, <laughs> but it runs in the family. Yeah, my older brother was a good writer. So, I mean, I had that idea in my head anyway, because when you're a younger kid, you want to do what the older kids do. But um, we moved a lot when I was new in school, mm. young. Um, we had just moved from Florida to a school in Northborough, Massachusetts. And in the middle of the first grade, quite a change there. It was a it was a whole new world for a kid from Florida because you know in Massachusetts in the winter it's a life of galoshes and snowsuits and uh, <laughs> kind of you know we would go into this little school and you had a little hook in the hall and you would take off all your galoshes and your snowsuit and all these things you'd put on to walk to school and you would hang it on the hook and put your little galoshes underneath right. and yeah. Um, it was my my introduction to indoor recess happened in Massachusetts <laughs> because we didn't really have those in Florida. Right. Um, and I, I learned brand new in this class um, that, you know, if it snowed hard, you stayed in for indoor recess and you were supposed to ask someone to play a board game with you or whatever. And I didn't know anybody in the class. I was too shy to ask anybody. I thought they would say no and I would just die or something. And... Um, <laughs> So I was sitting there writing a story, and my teacher, Mrs. Crackhart, came to my desk, and she started to read that story over my shoulder, and she was saying things like, oh, this is a wonderful story, and I wonder what happens next, and I was writing faster and faster, because <laughs> um, I was kind of a flies-under-the-radar kind of kid anyway, and so... Uh, I thought this was pretty pretty fantastic that this new teacher was interested in something I was doing. And um, and I, I couldn't have told you for years, because we didn't stay there very long. We moved again in a few months. But I couldn't have told you for years whether she was a young teacher or an old teacher, um, what she looked like. But I could have told you what it felt like in that moment when she took that story and she stacked the pages on my desk and she, um, you are a wonderful writer. And I just thought, I, I am a wonderful writer. And, um, <laughs> you know, you have little defining moments in life and I always believed I could do it because my first grade teacher said I could. Important too. I mean, key figures like that in our life really make a difference, don't mm -hmm. they? Yes. And I'm sure you found that with maybe your creative side, Dave, yep. you know, just having that affirmation yep. just really feeds that drive. Yes. So, yeah. And I thank my grade school teachers, our teachers for helping me pursue the career that, that I have done as right. well. So yeah. there you go. Yeah. You never know. One of my favorite things when I travel around is 
in any crowd of book people when you're out speaking, there are a lot of educators. You know, educators are book people by nature usually. (laughs) You know, one of my favorite things is just to be able to tell them, you may never hear it. I mean, I hope they hear it from kids they taught, but, you know, in case they don't, uh, it's one of my favorite things to just be able to say there, you know, there are people out there to whom you spoke destiny, you know, and in case you don't hear it from them, hear it from me. You know, there are people whose people whose lives you changed. Exactly, exactly. And I had watched some of your YouTube videos, uh, just how a story it, it uplifts people, uh, and how important stories are. So I, I just really can't wait to really deep dive into your novels. I'm gonna put all my other books aside and just go for it. I just I love what you had said about them. <laughs> I enjoy them. You know, stories, I mean, if you think about every culture in the world, uh, every culture tells stories. I mean, that's the one thing we have in common um, from a high rise in New York City to um, a village in Africa. We all seek to understand the world and explain the world in some way through stories. And we teach through stories. We learn through stories. Yeah, and that, that's correct. And I think we learn most through stories. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll always remember the story. Uh, and and that's something I try to do when I was learning something. I try to create a story behind it. So then I just had to remember the story, and then I remembered what it was. <laughs> we're, we're hardwired for stories. Um, you know, we're, oh, I mean, obviously we are. Right. Across our cultures and time periods and languages. And uh, I mean, it's obviously that's that the way we're meant to experience a lot of the world is through stories. Right, right. And, uh, you know, I mean, you can go back to the old cliche, even to the visual arts. Right. Pictures worth a thousand words, right? Exactly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. What's the best art? The art, um, the story it, it tells. The exactly. story, what the story is of that picture. Right. Yeah. And Lisa, I, I don't think that we mentioned this uh, uh, before we got started, uh, but Kat here, she's actually a art instructor here at the Visual Arts Center. Oh, wow. I, I, I just thought I would mention that. Now, Lisa, I just wanted to uh, back up here for a minute um, because you actually were able to track down and meet with that teacher, correct? That inspired I you? I did. Not at first. My first book, Tending Roses, came out. I tried to, I still had the second grade or the first grade report card. Um, (laughs) He had written on it, keep that pencil moving with that wonderful imagination, Lisa. I will see your name in a magazine one day. (laughs) (laughs) So I knew what her name was, even though, you know, all those years later, I didn't remember her name, but I had the report card, so I knew. Uh, so I tried contacting the school that I had had all those years ago in the first grade, you know, where I had had her. It had been so many years. She could have been elderly when I had her. You know, I didn't know if she was still around anywhere. Um, so my third book, which was a book called The Language of Sycamores, was actually dedicated to teachers and to her because it was teachers and educators had a lot, a, a big role in that story. So um, when that book came out, a, a reporter in Northboro, Massachusetts, where I had been in school with Miss Crackhart, did an article, talked about how the late Mrs. Crackhart had inspired me. And the woman in the bookstore saw the article when it came out. The woman in the bookstore 
Mrs. Crackheart had been a longtime customer of hers and oh. indeed wow. bought her daughter just 10 years prior in the first grade and was also not late. <laughs> <laughs> Still a customer of the bookstore at that point. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Yes, the bookstore owner um, is the hero in this story because the, the bookstore owner connected us and I got to thank Mrs. Crackheart and the newspaper had to print a retraction and do another article. <laughs> wow, that is so wonderful. Yeah, yeah, you thought here, well, I, I, yeah. it's too late, I missed her, but no, yeah. she's still there. Yeah, wonderful. So how was it? I mean, how did that feel when you when you finally met her? Oh, it was the best thing. Just being able to tell her and, uh, you know, of course she said she remembered me. I, I, I'm sure teachers tell all their <laughs> uh, and I learned later there there was at least one other author that she inspired to become an author. And, oh. Um, who I I can't imagine um, all the students she must have inspired in in all the different directions because she was such an amazing teacher and she had such a wonderful way of uh, spotting what was special in each kid and really encouraging that and you know making school this visceral exciting tactile experience every there you day go. Wow. Um, and it was so great to be able to tell her that oh fantastic wow, wow. another moment you'll never forget huh right. lisa i will not so lisa how about we move forward a little bit let's let's go into that first novel i mean obviously you kind of touched on some of the things that, that inspired you to write the novel my first novel I started writing freelance right out of college, but it was a few years later and a couple babies later. <laughs> <laughs> I really got curious about wanting to write a novel. Um, it was, you know, I had always wanted to do it. I was great at starting novels. I just wasn't real great at finishing them. <laughs> um, okay. And so I just made up my mind. I, um, you know, I was going to get busy and I was, I was going to finish writing a novel. And so I, I, at the time I had these true stories from my grandmother that I had written down when she came to stay with my first son and me and being around a tiny baby again after many, many years of no babies in the family really reminded her of a lot of, a lot of her life she had sort of left behind and not talked about. And um, and lessons she wanted to teach me as, as this busy um, 90s mom who was kind of all focused on, you know, all the yuppie stuff that was seemed like such a big deal in the 90s and <laughs> lessons she wanted to teach. And so I had written those things down, but I didn't really know what I would ever do with them. And the idea came to me to, to combine my grandmother's real stories with a fictional family who um, my family will have you know they are fiction we are not as neurotic as the people in the book <laughs> but grandmother is really my grandmother and the stories the grandmother writes down for her granddaughter in the book are really my grandmother's stories mm -hmm. and you know it was just it's those teaching moments that can happen um especially when you skip a generation this is harder with your parents it's harder right. with parents children but there's something about grandparents and grandchildren, you know, and, and I learned so much from her. And that period of time with her after my son was born changed everything I thought about life. It changed the way I looked at life. In what way? It changed my view of life as being not 
just a trip from what you've got to what you want to get. But this journey with all this stuff in the middle and maybe some of the best stuff in the middle. And, you know, I realized I was missing it because I was so focused down the road. Right, right. That, that happens so easily. You're just not present to the moment. There you go. And I guess that visit with her kind of opened your eyes to that. And it did. I think there's, you're right about having the connection with the grandparents as opposed to parents. Uh, I find that so true. When I look back, it's like, yeah, I had, you know, my eyes opened more so from the stories of my grandparents. I mean, my parents were just so busy working. What a neat story, though. And, and I love the title, Time for Tending Roses. <laughs> now, speaking of story, Kat, you probably don't know this, but Lisa, there's a great little backstory to how that title was chosen, right? So why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, it, um, I had originally titled that book something longer, but it, uh, like the first year of Tending Roses or something, um, it was mm. a sentence, and my husband, they had walked by my desk in the morning and he had marked out everything but the words tending roses mm -hmm. and put an arrow to you know pointing to tending roses and when i saw it i was like oh that is that is the perfect title and it's exactly her because one of the stories in the book is about the flower bed she grew when she mm -hmm. married my father and came to the farm and my grandmother was white trash, basically. She told us that. I mean, she felt she had come above that. And when she told me the stories, I really learned where she came from. You know, I realized they were they were the white trash in town. They were the kids people made fun of, called names, and all that kind of thing. And uh, and this flower bed she started when she married my grandfather, who was a self-sustaining farmer during the Depression era. So you know, he was well off compared to a lot of people. And mm. um, so you can imagine what kind of scandal that was and she was uh, 30 years younger than him too so um flower bed was the one thing that was hers on the farm um you know that she had created that that didn't come from him and she valued it a lot and keep up that flower bed that was her thing and you know it was her accomplishment and it belonged to her and you know and so there was a lot of uh, symbolism in um in the flowers and the tending of her roses and when she told me the whole story about the flower bed, her point at the end of it was, you know, because she talked about how much she resented that time period when she had to let her roses just grow wild and die because she didn't have time to tend them. And, you know, and, and her point at the end was, you know, I, I can go work in the flowers all day now. Right. No husband to feed, no kids to take care of, no neighbors stopping in. You know, and she said, but the best times of my life were the times when the roses grew wild. Yeah, those uh, spontaneous, genuine moments and not focused on this tending to something all the time, but just letting those interruptions end up being our most poignant, I guess, moments, you know, our really, truly lived moments. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean... Life happens in the middle of all the craziness, and I think that's what she taught me. A lot of those those unscripted, crazy little kids running naked around the house. Right. <laughs> um, you know, those moments you, that you, you love later and, you know, and that you wish you could have back. And um, that she really did teach me that, and it, it changed a lot of how the life we lived as a family, basically. So what a great lesson. There you go. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm so thankful I had her at that time because she grew up so poor uh, and because she was always trying to prove herself, you know, because she married up. Mm-hmm. Um, she, she was very, very focused on things. I knew her as a person who was very focused on belonging, you know, and, and she and she was very fussy about how you treated her things and if you sat on the you know sofa with dirty pants and if you (laughs) fussy about things so that was how I knew her and you know and and I used to get frustrated with her because of that um and then to have her come and and stay and um, and come to understand her because when you don't understand somebody it's because you you don't know their story we don't know them right Mm -hmm. right we're all a product of what we've experienced and so once I understood her and then to have her say you know Basically, it's not the things I miss. It's the, the school plays and the, you know, the trick-or-treat costumes and, you know, and the ordinary days of walking out in the yard and watching my kids play. And, you know, it, it really gave me to realize I didn't have to make some of those same mistakes in my own life. And okay. what a great gift from your grandmother. I mean, really, like you said... Yeah. It just gave you the chance to savor those moments for yourself and not long for them later so much. Exactly. So, yeah. I, I love re- that story. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I would still rewind if I could. I would I would take these two big man children that I have. <laughs> I would rewind them to about nine and five and just keep them there if I could. But <laughs> I haven't figured out how yet. <laughs> Maybe that's a new novel. Okay, everyone, we'll be right back. My name is Isaac Mingus. I'm a bassist for the Charlotte Symphony Orchestra under Maestro Raffaele Ponti, and I thoroughly enjoy Partnership for the Arts talk show. Okay, everyone, we are back, and we are talking art with author Lisa Wingate. She is an author of over 30 novels. Her latest one, Before We Were Yours, is a New York Times bestseller for week 51 now and has sold well over a million copies. Okay, Lisa, let's uh, move on. That was your first novel, your second, Mm -hmm. then your third, and then you actually got quite prolific in writing and those novels started coming a little quicker. They did. Um, for a while, a number of years, I wrote two two novels a year. And it just sort of happened that way. I ended up writing for a couple different publishers, and uh, publishers kind of like to have a novel a year if they can get it. And, you know, so for a number of years, I was really, really, really pumping out the novels. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, in the middle of life, people used to always ask, well, don't you have to have a quiet place to write? <laughs> Good luck with that when you're raising your family. (laughs) I wrote on sidelines of soccer practice and in the carpool line and with, you know, gangs of boys running through the house and everything. I I mean, I just, I just wrote in the middle of life and the books added up and, and here we are. Yeah. Wow. So you, again, been writing as the kids grown up, as you said, <laughs> children now. You have written over 30 novels. Before we get into your latest novel, the books that you, you've written, you've 
covered quite a few different varied subjects through those books. Do you want to just maybe touch on some of the highlights of some of the books of, of what inspired you to write one, just what comes to mind? Oh, sure. Um, you know, every book has, has a spark, and I don't ever know what it will be until it happens, really, and, you know, until I just stumble across it in life and, and lightning strikes, or uh, often I will jot things down and put them in my idea drawer, um, <laughs> which is full of, you know, restaurant napkins and all, you know, <laughs> the backs of shopping receipts and whatever, where I've had an idea or come across something, and you know, I never know what it will be. Um, for every book, I can I can definitely point to what happened that inspired it. Okay, well, why don't you pick one and, and let's talk about that. Uh, when I started The Prayer Box, I had been asked by a publisher to just give them four or five one-sentence ideas of things I might write. Mm -hmm. And so I had gotten out the idea drawer with all my little notes to kind of paw through them. And, you know, writers are kind of like, like, like old, old fashioned, um, hobos. Uh, you know? <laughs> we sort of wandered roads and we, and we put shiny things in our pack <laughs> and we carry them around for a while. And then we pull them out and look at them and, uh, you know, and, and start to start a story about them. And so I was kind of doing that with my pack of, of goods in the idea drawer. And, I looked across the room when I was doing that, and I saw this prayer box sitting there that mm -hmm. had been by a group where I went to speak. And I thought, what What if someone kept a prayer box for every year of her life? Um, what, you know, what would be in those if you could open up the prayers for each year of a person's life? You know, what would that be like? And uh, that story just tumbled in all at once, and it became the tale of the young woman who cleans out this house of an, an elderly woman who's died and finds these 81 prayer boxes that are really the chronicle of this woman's life um, from a very young age until you know, the end of her years. Um, what she's, what's more true to who you are than what you would uh, pray for and think nobody else would ever, you know, if you were writing letters to God, what, what would be more true to who you are than that? And, um, and that became the story of the prayer box. While I was working on the prayer box, sometimes when you're researching one thing, you run into another. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. Trails of the internet, I ran across an article about DNA studies on melungeons which I knew that word, melungeons, M-E-L-U-N-G-E-O-N. Um, -E I knew that word because when I was young uh, in the South, and I had heard people say to me, oh, now, don't, the old, older people, oh, now, don't go off in the woods. The melungeons will get you. The gypsies will get you or whatever, or the boogeyman will get you. Right. And so I'm looking at this headline that Melungeon DNA studies, and I'm like, what? That's, that's <laughs> big DNA studies or something. It doesn't make any sense. That doesn't compute. And um, and I, I so I dug into it, and I started reading about this group of people who were discovered in the Eastern Mountains by the first known European explorers to press in to that territory, and they found these um, swarthy skinned black-haired, blue-eyed people living in villages and houses, um, using a bell to call uh, to call their gatherings together, 
putting the Maltese pot cross on their um, pottery, but these people spoke no known language that the Europeans uh, knew and no language that the Native American guides. And so explain that one. Right. It's, it's a mystery. Where uh, genetically a mix of um, African-American, Native American, and white. But how did that get there, you know, decades and decades and decades before the first known explorers come into the eastern mountains of um, North America? And so, um, you know, so that inspired the story keeper because the great thing about fiction is you can, you can solve those mysteries in fiction. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. What a fascinating story. Now, now that's something I'm going to have to look into too. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that, uh, yeah. that, that, that part of it either. Wow. It's fascinating. Um, there, nobody knows how that combination of genetics ended up in Appalachia. Yeah. Um, like, like I said, that, that early on, it's a mystery. Wow. That, that's, wow. uh, I'm intrigued now. <laughs> I'm really oh, intrigued. Uh, and they, they were uh, always quite the, very shunned for one thing, and, um, you know, in the cultures of Appalachia and very talked about, you know, they, and uh, there were lots of legends and stories about the Melungeons because they, they tended to keep to themselves, um, and be sort of insular communities. And there were lots of stories about how, you know, they were devil fired and witchy. And if you went up, you know, around their villages, well, you'd catch some kind of a, a curse and you'd get sick and die. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of lore about Melungeons and um, where, you know, what they were and where they came from. And so there was infinite fodder for a story there. <laughs> right, I know. Wow, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm just curious, you come up with these sparks with your characters, do you kind of have like an overall idea of a storyline, but then you just kind of go with the flow and let the characters develop themselves? Right, I was thinking the same thing. Do you have a certain method or does it change per subject matter? Uh, every book is a little different. Um, I always have, I mean, I have a system, but some part, some, to some degree, every book is a little bit of serendipity and, and a little bit of a creature of the moment. Um, but I, I always work on a three act structure. And, uh, so I always have when I'm first concept in the story, you know, I always, I'm always thinking in terms of the three act structure, you know, what would the major, um, points in the plot be? Whose story is this to tell? Um, some of the story will come out of the research as well. Uh, you know, you start doing the research and, and there are uh, pieces of true stories that, uh, or true history that you, you end up being perfect to incorporate in the story. And from there, really, it's a journey of discovery. And I meet these fictional people like you would meet anyone in real life. You, you sort of see a person on the outside and you know how that person dresses and you can make some assumptions about what that person might do for a living or or what kind of area that person might live in or what kind of personality the person might have but um but from there it's about really getting to know what's what's underneath the mask what drives this person what um what's missing in this person what yeah her story is a quest so where does the quest lead for this person? What's going to fill the holes in this person? You know, what's going to satisfy that incompleteness? 
And um, so, you know, part of the story grows out of the character. Some parts of it will grow just out of life. Sometimes when I'm a little muddled trying to figure out how something can be solved or how people can get from point A to point B in a story, and something will happen in life and I'll think, oh, well, that that would work, you know. <laughs> you never know. I at One time I needed a, just as an example, one time I needed a, a reason why a character would take this old winding highway where there was this old crossroads store between Waco and Austin, Texas, instead of taking the interstate. The business type woman, she's on a business errand, she's in a hurry, so the old road is not the way she would go. So I, I was toying around with it, and I turned on the TV, and a bridge had fallen down on the interstate. <laughs> hey, you know? So sometimes it's just a creature. Sometimes life just provides. Right, right. You know what? I think, you know, when, Dave, when you and I were discussing, a kind of have an idea, we get started with it, uh, it starts to develop somewhat, but then the work starts informing us. And right. it sounds like you kind of have the same process here, Lisa, where you're, you, you kind of have something to get started with that inaugurates the process, and then as it develops, it starts to inform you. And I can even say, now that you brought this up, that you know the painting will inform me, but I might have struggles, or I might, you know, maybe I want to change something out, and something that actually happens in my life or that I witness will give me the idea for it. <laughs> so it is so neat to hear about how that process is very similar for you. Yeah, it, it is. Life will provide in in the strangest ways, and I, I, I'm, you know, a lot of it I think is just awareness because you know you're had you have a problem you're trying to solve it's like new products that you find and you might pass right by them until you have the problem that that product can right solve. <laughs> <laughs> part of being an artist of any kind i think is just about awareness you know writers and artists are noticers and it's just about mm -hmm. noticing things uh, i i think I just love that. Yeah, love the comparison there between mm -hmm. the, the literary and going into the visual arts and back there, yeah. And Lisa, I just wanted to back up for a minute because when you mentioned the prayer box, that brings me back to the point when we actually met. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's yeah. a few years ago now, um, uh, but that was the prayer box book tour. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me and wife Mary were going through bookstore there, and of course I went in there to get a cup of coffee. <laughs> and uh, I come around the side. There's this uh, lady sitting there at a table, closing up. And uh, I walked over and I said, hey, what's this all about? And, of course, Lisa was sitting there. And she said, well, I've been doing a book tour and I was just kind of closing up and everything else. And I said, well, wait, not just yet. <laughs> <laughs> what's the book? And uh, we started that conversation, and then Mary came over, and uh, we ended up talking for quite a while. In fact, I think we made her quietly from <laughs> leaving you getting back on the road. Uh, but that was Mary's first book of yours that she bought and read. And she still says, I'm kind of biased now because this was one of my first ones I read, so it's really one of her favorites. Uh, that you signed? It came back the, day, the, the time we first met. Yeah. Yeah, it, um, that was the longest book tour I've ever done all at once. <laughs> but I, I remember that was such a nice conversation, and we weren't actually that day in a hurry to get anywhere else. And so 
you know, we, I remember we just had the nicest conversation there in the bookstore and, um, you know, every once in a while you just run into a, a kindred spirit when you're out on the road and that kind of that moment, you know, we talked about the arts and books and, um, ways to, to spread that love of the arts just Mm -hmm. out into the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And Lisa, that was actually in uh, Birmingham, Alabama. It was. And, um, Actually, that was the last time I've been to Birmingham, Alabama on, you know, just, it's, it's always sort of random what works into a book tour, but that was the last time I've been back until this year with Before We Were Yours. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, in fact, we'll, we'll kind of get into that, too, a little bit of your, uh, your tour, because uh, you will be coming to Florida. Mm-hmm. So we are looking forward to catching up with you several times when you get here. Mm-hmm. So... We, we've kind of covered some of the methods uh, that you use for, for putting a book together and collecting your napkins and all your shiny things for the book. <laughs> Do you have any kind of insight that you might want to give out for someone that, that's looking at a novel or a book that has something in their head? Do you have anything that you want to just throw out there to maybe help them get started? I know Kat's over here naughty wanting an answer to that. <laughs> I'm one of those people that say I have a book in me. Oh, okay. Well, you know, one great thing about having a book in you, it will sit there and wait until you're ready to give it time. And that's one thing I'll tell people, you know, the great thing about writing is you can pick it up at any point in your life. Getting started on a book is, um, you know, you have to figure out what works for you for one thing. People always ask, and there's no wrong way to do it. Whatever will get you from once upon a time to the end uh, is a great method. Um, you know, so you have to figure out, are you going to write a certain amount every day? Are you going to just write when you're inspired and write like crazy? And you have to figure out what works for you with that. Okay, yep. So actually, Lisa, just hold on right there because believe it or not, we're running out of time. Already? Yeah. We just got started. How I, could that be? I know. It feels like it. But, you know, listening to uh, Lisa speak here is just so engaging. We have ran out of time for part one. We will be back for part two That's right. of our interview with Lisa Wingate. And we will get into her latest novel, uh, Before We Were Yours. So, Lisa, thank you for coming on. Thank you uh, for taking the time. And we will get back with you for part two. All right. You guys take care. Have a good rest of the afternoon. So with that, Kat, I'm going to say you have a good day. You too, Dave. And thank you so much, Lisa. What a treat this has been. I look forward to the next one. That's right. Bye-bye. So everyone, thank you for tuning in and listening to Partnership for the Arts, where we talk art. This is Partnership for the Arts talk show. Thanks for joining us. As we explore the worlds of art. You can find this and other episodes on our Facebook page, Partnership for the Arts Group Talk Show, or our newest website, pftatalkshow.org. This show is recorded at the Visual Arts Center in Punta Gorda, Florida. Because you have a fan base out there. So just wanted to let you know. <laughs> That's nice. It's, you know, it's always fun when people are reading the books and want to know more about the story behind it and how it came to be. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's why we are here. And oh, <laughs> look at this. <laughs> okay, Lisa, there is a sign held up at the door of the library window right now that says, We love you, Lisa. Oh.